So if you've been hanging out with us, you know we started a brand new series last week in Colossians. We talked about how the letter of Colossians was written to the, uh, from Paul in prison to the church in Colossae, or Colossae, however you want to say that. I won't be, there's, you know, just say it the same way all the time. And we're actually studying the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon, and we're going to find out later on when we get to Philemon how these two books are connected. You may already know this, but how they're connected in Paul's writings from the jail. I share with you that also Ephesians and Philippians were written from the same jail, likely. And this is a Caesarean jail, which means it's Caesar's jail. He's in jail for Rome. He's on his way to share the gospel in Rome, and he, uh, he writes these letters from his own chains. Last week, the wind's going to help me here, last week we covered uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, but we ended with this idea, and I want to remind you where we were, we ended this idea that God transports us, moves us from darkness into the light of the kingdom of his Son through the forgiveness of our sins, which brings reconciliation. And so today is going to have a lot about reconciliation in it. I told you last week we're going to talk about the, the introduction of the book, but this week we're going to go deep. We're going to go deep into the word and, and hear what Paul has to say about who Jesus is and indeed what Jesus looks like. I will remind you that Paul's writing against a couple of heresies in Colossae. He had not been there in person, and a couple of the heresies he's writing against was first was about a spirituality without physicality right? He was writing about a people who were Gnostics. They were in their head all the time, but they weren't believing that anything in the world's worth redemption, the physical world we live in, which is why I think I love that God has us in the park today, as Emily said earlier, surrounded by his creation, singing his praises as part of the song that God received for his, receives for his glory every day. So we're transported then from darkness into the light of Jesus Christ, but I want to ask a question as we get started this morning. When you think about Jesus in your mind, or, or how do you see him, or how do you imagine Jesus in your mind? When, when you just, when someone, you know, everyone says Jesus, and even the non-believers will say Jesus this. Everyone has opinions about Jesus. But in your mind, what do you imagine? Or, or here's another question, maybe. How big is Jesus? I know some of y'all been in church a while, you're like, Jesus is big, man. He's big, right? But I, and some of you will be like, he's a person. Like if he walked up in the crowd, he'd be sitting in the chair next to you and you wouldn't necessarily notice. And Paul's going to write to try to instruct here in the ending part of chapter one, uh, something of how, what Jesus looks like. So with that being said, let's pray and we'll get right into the word this morning. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your holy and inspired scriptures that gives us wisdom and knowledge and understanding and your grace and your mercy that demonstrates the size and scale and scope of your son, Jesus. Help us to come honestly this morning with how we view him, our own predispositions, our own flaws, and then hear your word confessed what he looks like. Open our minds to your truth, our hearts to believe, our lives to make known this good news. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you brought a Bible, hopefully you did. If you didn't, you probably got one on your phone, on the, even though there's no Wi-Fi here. There's also Bibles over by the green boxes. You can grab one of those and follow along. I would encourage you to look at the Word. Don't take what I say for granted, but look at for yourself and see what it says. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 15, and we're going to be covering through, probably through 29 today, but we'll see how we go here. Starting in 15. 
So Paul says this. I'm going to go back to uh, two verses, 13. says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom, the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Wow. <laughs> Listen, this is, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this week. This is one of the most condensed, powerful uh, passages of scripture I think I know. And it's hidden in Colossians. I don't know if we ever even look at Colossians that much, but I was reading this, and Paul's writing, I told you before, he's going to address this issue is, is Jesus only spirit, or is God's salvation only spirit? And I want to apologize to you right now, because I know you just came in here, and you're like, in a pavilion, it's fine, but Drew might have turned me down, because I might get loud about this. I'm not trying to get loud about this, but there's so much packed in here, and I want to start with the very beginning. I'm going to walk you through 12 things that first that the, the Colossians says about the scale and the scope of Jesus Christ. And it's amazing. First, in verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. The word there is to have the idea of a statue or a bust or a likeness. Have you ever been to a museum? You see that weird kind of upper body on a pedestal thing? It's like that's Jesus to the invisible God, <laughs> the God that you can't see or touch or know. That he is the very image or icon. The word there is the same word we use for icon. He resembles the invisible God, the God that's non-seeable. As a matter of fact, you might know that for, for all of time, it's been like the God that you can't know. You remember even in um, Rome, there was the altar to the unknown God. It's like the God you can't see, the God beyond our perception. And I will tell you this, we live in a culture right now that is satisfied with an unknown God. Just out there somewhere, my God, your God, his God, her God, who's God? I don't know. Some God, but that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> he is the icon, the image of the invisible God. I've heard it one time preached at Family Bible Church, and I didn't preach it. They said, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. <laughs> Everything he did. I want you to think about the practicality of his life. His disciples following him every day. He was the image of the invisible God. He spoke like no one else. He had authority like no one else. And so he carries the image. We are all image bearers of God, but he was the image of God. Sometimes we get in these conversations, we say, what does God look like? You know, is God male or female? He can't, he can't. Listen, Jesus was manifest as the very image, likeness of God. 
I'm not trying to have an argument like Dale. I don't want to have arguments about this stuff. But this is what the word proclaims about Jesus. You can have anything else the way you want to have it, but you can't have Jesus the way you want to have him. You have to ignore the Bible to have a false Jesus because it's clearly proclaimed here that he is the image of the God you cannot see. Have you ever wondered what God looks like? Sometimes those conversations will happen with your kids, right? What does God look like? I know it's a Sunday school answer, but Jesus, he looks like Jesus, or Jesus looks like God. That's how that's said. Look at what else it says in 15. He is, number two, he is the firstborn over all creation. He's the protocos, the prototype over each and every next thing in the totality of all of God's making. He's the very first thing. And some people read that and say, oh, he's the first thing made. That's not what it says. It says he is the prototype over, over all. That means over each and every. Listen, I love this because we have these conversations all the time. We're going to some science in here today. Conversations about all time. You know, does God speak things as they are or does God change things over time? But this word here, over all, has the idea of each thing and then everything added to it. If things started every, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to go down and pray Thursday, four days for life, that baby starts as a cell and everything added to it until all of a sudden you have a little blob of cells and you have a head and all, and then you have little stubby things and you have fingers and toes and you have hearts and lungs and every part of it. Jesus Christ is the protos. He's the very first over all the creation. Why are we passionate for life? We're not anti-abortion, we're pro-life because he's the prototype. Every child in every womb is bearing the image of God and Jesus was the first born over all creation, the totality of creation. And I don't want to limit that to people. I mean, trees and bugs and plants and stars. We, the music today was awesome. He's the prototype He's the, 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 the part of the design, we're going to hear more about that in a minute, of God's building. And I want to say one more thing about God's creation. The creation here is not just a creation like, look, creation. <laughs> you know, like, look, there's a thing. That's not how it works. It's creation from nothing. God's building is not a building like I took some you know, materials and I put the posts up and I put a roof over it and now I made a building. No, you didn't. You just reallocated materials. <laughs> God created from nothing. Nothing. And Jesus is the prototype of the creation from nothing. Moving on then, three, for by him all things were created. Now this will sound very Johnian, Johannian. How do you say that? Very much like John, if you've heard it. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Nothing was made apart from him. Everything was made through him. But here you have it now in Paul. So if you don't, people like to pick and choose who they like to follow. I don't like John, I like Paul. Well, here's Paul saying, for by the Son, all things were created. All things in heaven were created, and all things on earth were created. All things visible were created, and all things invisible were created. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. Isn't that wild? 
So now Paul's like going to paint this picture of who the son is. And it's like, the son's not just the prototype, but he's the creator. He was part of the creation. And the word actually says that it was created in him, in the son, but also through the son. And so the son isn't just creating, he is in, he is, the creation's in him, but also through him. All things, panta, were made. And again, it's a building from nothing. That everything that had come into being, had come into being, listen to the grandiosity, through the sun. See, we're going to go, well, wait, there's a hierarchy, right? Like God the Father and God the Son and then the Spirit somewhere. Or maybe you're like a fairness guy and you're like, or girl, and you're like God the Father and the Son and the Spirit are kind of fighting it out for the favorite spot, you know? Listen. All things were created through him and in him. That's what Colossians says here. Paul's laying it out. Everything, and now remember, he's fighting against this idea that all material world is bad. Everything that you see, smell, taste, touch, is created through Jesus, in Jesus. I want to walk through those real quick. Whether in heaven, around those, or on earth, here. Whether visible or invisible, that's kind of clear. Whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, and those are all equalized. Thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. It's who has dominion, um, who is Lord in your life, the first things to come to power, and the exercise of power is all created in. So I want to now expand it even more from creation that he made to every power and authority that's ever existed. Have you read your history books? There's lots of power in the world. There's lots of experiences of power. Right now we're in the middle of a time that we're like, man, this is terrible. Or some people are going, man, this is great. You know, There's a few people, I guess, saying that. But most people are like, this is not fun. This is not good. And not just in our nation, but in other nations. People are saying, this is not good all across the world because they're not happy with the power. But I want you to see that the word says that all these things are established in and through Jesus. Some of our brothers and sisters are having, and us, are having disagreements because they believe because all power is created through Jesus, we should obey all authority and power, period. Carte blanche, why? Because it's in and through Jesus. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. But here you have then all power and authority, all creation, everything visible and invisible. I can ask a question here. What is not created in and through Jesus? What is not? There is nothing in this life, nothing at all. Listen to me. Nothing that you've experienced, nothing that you love, nothing that you hate, nothing that you don't know about, that it was not created in and through Jesus Christ. Nothing. Or everything. (laughs) All of a sudden, you start to get the scale and scope of who Jesus is, according to the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, where he's like, dude, you got to get this right. Don't make Jesus small. He's not small. Part of our failures of church is that we've made him impotent and weak, as if he's not God, and that is a tragedy for the Son. He made all things in him, but check this out. Number four, And it comes at the very end there. It says, all things in him. And look at the very end of verse 16. And what's the word say? For him. What? So now you have in, through, and for Jesus. Now I want to go back to the conversation about authorities and thrones and powers and rulers in this life and exercising authority. It's all created for Jesus. 
before Jesus. You may remember some of the stories before about people who were disobedient, who had authority in the scriptures. The scriptures are full of people who have authority and are not obedient to God. But God has purposes for the disobedience. It's all for him. The word says this, the son for whom all things were created. So all of us created for him. And the idea here is a purpose or a result. And I just want to say to you, Christian brother or sister, or if you're not believing, non-believing yet person, that uh, all these things are a purpose or a result for Jesus. How would I illustrate this? I would have great big arrows pointing right to Jesus. Everything is supposed to be for Jesus all the creation you see is supposed to be for the sun. Every, you know, now talk about your life, every job you have, every opportunity you have is supposed to be for Jesus. The way we get up, the way we function, the way we breathe, the way we live, the way we rule, the things we worship for Jesus. It's all for Jesus. It's in him, through him, and the word says for him, all of creation. Do you ever think about that? that everything that God had made had been made for his son. People have asked me this question. Wait a minute. Why would God even create Adam and Eve and the garden and the apple or the fruit and the tree and the rule that we're going to break? Why? Why would God allow suffering in the world? Why? Why would God allow me to go through hard times? Why? Paul's going to talk about it. For Jesus. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about the fact that at the perfect time in God's perfect plan, he sent his son to die, that all creation could be set free, that it was all intended for Jesus? Here's how you can say it. I want you to say it with me. Can you say all? All. Say it again. All. In Jesus, via Jesus, for Jesus. That's what Colossians says. It's all for Jesus. We ought not be despondent beyond hope that the world's going to hell in a handbasket because it's all for Jesus. I'm not saying everyone's for Jesus, but it's all for Jesus. It's all in Jesus. It's all through Jesus. How can we go out and take risks with our friends, our family, our neighbors? Because it's all for Jesus. I know I'm sounding redundant, but listen, this is what Colossians is saying. There's two verses. Here we go. 17. He is before all things. Before all things. So he comes first in everything. That doesn't mean he's first like he had to push into the front line. It means he was earlier than everything else. You remember that whenever he was talking to the Pharisees about who he is and what he's proclaiming, he said, before Abraham was, I M, right? That your forefathers you claim to know in faith, I came before the forefathers. And they were like, that's heretical because they knew what he was saying. He was the first before everyone else. He's before all things, not just the people, but the stuff. Jesus is first. Here's the next thing. And look at this, 17. And in him, I love this church, all things hold together. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's not just the first, he's not just the creator, but he's the binding agent, you know what I mean? Have you ever had to put something like in a meatloaf and you don't put the right thing and it just falls apart on the grill or something, you know? A grill, meatloaf, you know what I'm saying? Like a burger or grill in the oven, you know, and you put something, you gotta have something, Chris, you gotta have something, Bill, to bind it all together. I'm like, do you? Yeah, Jesus, right? That's what he's saying is that he binds everything together. He causes all things to hold together, to stand with in union, lining up with him. In Christ, all things hold together. I told you I have a little science in here. Man, I love this so much because, can I just say something, by the way? I can't go real hard on this, but just for a second. Okay, I'm getting a little annoyed by trust science. Science is science, y'all. Trust God. (laughs) Listen, I'm not saying don't trust science, but trust science. It's like, it's the new mantra. You can just feel it. And listen, there's nothing in the scientific realm that's going to refute the truth of who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and what this word has proclaimed for 2,000 years. And you think, well, no, Bill, I know some things. Let's talk about that. I have heard and I've been part of these conversations. The, the, only because we've made Jesus small is science not included in who Jesus is. Come on, church. He is bigger than that. What does the word say? He binds all things together. Why am I talking about science again here? Why am I talking about science? Listen to this. So if you look at, my favorite thing about scientists when they're honest is they run out of road. They don't know what they're talking about. If they become really good at their field, they get to the point they're like, <laughs> I mean, that's the basis of scientific inquiries. You don't know the answer to the, you're going to try. You're going to guess and try, guess and try. My nephew, he wants to be an astronaut or an astrophysicist or something like that. And I said, uh, you're going to be a scientist? And he's like, yeah. I go, so science fiction. And he goes, no. He was so offended. I'm like, like, yeah, science fiction, because you make it up and then see. And he's like, no, that's not what scientists do. I'm like, yeah, it's the process, right? You try, you fail, you try, you fail, and you think you got to figure it out until you learn something new. There's a thing called the CERN accelerator, particle accelerator. They built it in, in a country. There's this huge loop that they pulled a vacuum on that has, less, that has more vacuum than space, less stuff in this tube on Earth than there is in space. And they're looking at it and trying to figure stuff out. And they discovered something called the, I'm going to look it up here real quick on my notes. It's called the strong force. And there's something called dark matter. <laughs> they're like, we don't know what it even is. <laughs> you know, they've run out of road on this stuff. But listen with the strong force. I was blown away. You, okay, a little bit of, what's it called? Quantum mechanics, quantum physics. <laughs> I don't know this stuff. I just, I'm just fascinated when I hear it, right? But listen what this says. The strong force binds quarks. Quarks. Q-U-A-R-K-S together to make protons and neutrons and other uh, particles. If you you remember uh, Jimmy Neutron, that little symbol on his shirt, those are protons and neutrons going around the thing, you know? There's something else in there called quarks, and quarks bind all the things together, something called the strong force. And listen what what their discovery is. By passing glutons... (laughs) I just think it's funny. They called it glutons, y'all. The thing that sticks them together, they said, let's make up a name for it. What do you call it? Let's call it glutons. Okay. Glutons for the quarks that hold all things together. And they're like, that's what we think is happening. They're holding things together because practically, scientifically, everything should be flying apart. I don't mean like the stars. But I mean your body. Existence should be flying apart. But no, everything is being held Together, can I preach for a minute about Jesus and the second coming of Christ? See, there's this idea that we have it all figured out. We know everything there's to know. and We can just, you know, relegate God to the little God on the sides. But when Christ lets go, what does life look like? 
when all the pressures and all slinging, when he finally says, I'm out, everything falls apart. Christ binds all things together. When the shaking comes, when the hard days come, when life gets crazy, Christ binds all things together. When we find ourselves getting hopeless, it's Christ who binds all things together. And see, they're discovering the very thing that's been proclaimed about Jesus. And I know they wouldn't say it's Jesus holding things together. I know it. But I'm saying by way of illustration, the more we find, the more we know we don't know about how the world is held together. It's Christ, according to Paul, from a prison. Christ holds all things together. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, that is, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. We're going to take those a couple of times here. Seven, he is the head, the caliphate, of his body, somatos, or his flesh. Now, Paul, I told you, you're going to tie this idea together. There's this great big God. He's now tied in all of creation to the Son, and now he's going to tie in the actual flesh, his own flesh. He's the head of his body, and then Paul says that is the ecclesia, the church, those who are called out of this world. So now we have Christ being the ruler, the head, the thinker, the leader, the one that's in charge. Think what your head does for your body. Your body can function on its own, but without your head, it can't do anything practical, right? But the head instructs the body how to do useful things. And so Christ is the head over the body, and Paul calls that body the church. We are the body of Christ, that he is our head, our ruler, our authority, and that we are called out of this world as his body in obedience to his commands as our leader or our head. I hope you can see that there, right? So it's a, it's a very practical analogy, but Paul's getting in. I want to make a point here to this somatos, which is flesh, which was being called um, uh, always evil, in Colossae. Nothing good comes in the flesh in Colossae, part of the uh, heresy there. And Paul says, no, he is the actual head of his somatos, his body, the ecclesia, the church. And then I read it to you a minute ago. Um, he is the beginning. He's the beginning. That's the R case. And the firstborn out of the dead the prototype again, the firstborn like he was before, but now he's the firstborn not only in creation, but the firstborn from the dead. The word there is necron, and it's the dead plural, not singular. So he's the firstborn of all the dead, Jesus Christ. He's the prototype not just of creation and not just of life and not just the image bearer of God, the image, the true likeness of God, but he is the prototype of resurrection, Jesus, the Son is the first raised from the dead, not just in the, this, in the life to come, but in this life right now. You wonder why people were like stunned by Jesus. And they, he's like this different. I mean, people who didn't even like Jesus were like, he's different than other people though. It's because he was the firstborn of the dead before he even died and was raised to new life. He functioned differently. And you and I know if we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the third day to new life, that he then walked amongst the people that they could see that there is something beyond this curse of death, and that is true life. True life. He's the firstborn, the prototype of the dead, and that, that should give us hope for resurrection, the hope of a life beyond the grave. 
Paul says in other places, we ought not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because we are dead to our sin and we are alive in Christ and we will surely be present with him when we're absent from the body. So he's the firstborn of the dead. Let's see where we're at. And, and look at this. And in everything, he has supremacy. Now it says in order that in everything. He's the firstborn of the dead so that he can have supremacy in everything, in creation and in life and in death. Christ rules all these things. He is a supreme ruler. He's the solo ruler. He, but I, I want to point out here, it says that he ought to have uh, he should have supremacy. The word says it this way, in order that he might have. Where would the might come in at then? If Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's the firstborn of the dead, how could he might be supremacy, the first, the, hiding the whole, holding the highest place in all things? The only thing I can think of here is that unless we choose to refuse him that position, we say he's not first, he's somewhere in there. Some people say he's not first all, he's last. There's nothing about him that's special or unique. He ought to hold the first place in everything, all things. The word there is panta again, in order that he can, including in life after death. 19, because, now here Paul goes, because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in his son. So now, we have Paul saying, all the fullness of God lived in Jesus. Lest you think there's certain parts where he doesn't, doesn't know, certain parts where he isn't, isn't God, certain moments where he becomes God later. He says that God is pleased to have all the totality, the completeness of himself, God, the creator God, dwell in this human package of flesh on the earth, which is where we get people who have a small view of Christ. Because they go, yeah, he was that man in the first century, he was, a, he was a, um, you know, taking away a sect of Judaism to follow after himself. He was uh, preaching a false gospel. He was claiming to be Messiah, but he was not. But that's not what Paul says. He says, no, he was all those things packed into his body. The fullness of God dwelling in Christ, living in him. So now you have him with the fullness of God, pleasing to God, dwelling in him, settling down in Jesus. A couple more verses here. For God was pleased to have the fullness of him and through him, the son, to reconcile to himself all things. And now we're gonna list again, whether on earth or whether things in heaven. And then look at this, by making peace through the blood shed, through his blood shed on the cross. So in who God was pleased to have his fullness dwell, 11, through whom all things were being reconciled. That's the word. It means being taken from one feeling or thought to another, changing hearts, changing minds. God is pleased to have him reconcile everyone to himself, everyone on earth. And look at this says, and everything, everything on earth and everything in heaven, all being reconciled, taken from one feeling to another in Christ, being conformed to God's will. Lastly, and it's not last, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. So it was in the son's blood shed on the cross that reconciliation brought peace or having made 
past tense, but inactive, having made peace on earth and in heaven. Here's how it actually reads in the Greek. I'm gonna just not going to say Greek to you, but I'm going to read it to you. Having made peace by the blood of the cross of him through him, whether things of earth or things of heaven. There it is again. Peace of Jesus through Jesus. So now Paul has taken us on this full ride of the scale and scope, and I'm not saying it's complete, but it's his articulation of who Christ is, of the Son's unique role in the Father's plans and in the gospel they've believed. One issue Paul was dealing with is that spiritual only, and I think he's put it to bed. He's like, no, he's everything. <laughs> and, and that means that a great thing, and we're gonna talk about that next, it means a great thing for all of us. But I have a question, and I was just thinking about this. Maybe you can think it with, about it with me. Why the physical shedding of blood? Why the physical nature, the brutal nature of a cross? Why send his son in real flesh like all of us? And why place his son in his creation. I mean, there's a bunch of ways you could think to do that. But we have this bloody, evil, hopeless mess. See, Paul takes us right to the physical death and resurrection of Jesus when talking about who he is. Why? Read verse 21 with me. Church in Colossae, Church of Family Bible in Highland, Illinois, Church of Believers, wherever you are, once you were alienated from God, once you were enemies in your minds and in your hearts because of your evil behavior. Look at 22. But now the Son has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free of accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you've heard and that you've it's been proclaimed to you and to every creation under heaven, every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Why? Because God is redeeming his holy people. We were once, and I want to say we here, we were once alienated, estranged, other. We were the foreign invader. We were the enemy, hostile in our minds, our thoughts, and the thoughts and minds that led to evil behavior. It was us who was destined for hell, who was forsaken by God. And because of that, he sent his son to reconcile us to him through the cross. But now you have been reconciled. The word says that he has reconciled you. He has made the debt square. He has said it's okay. And I want you to see through the flesh of him who died, the body of the flesh through him who died to present you, listen to the word church this morning, holy, set apart, different, not the same, changed, move from here to here, change your mind, change your life. He presents you unblemished, without flaw, listen to me, without shame, without regret, 
pure in his presence. He presents you, church, blameless, no charges against you. Hear the word, no charges against you from the enemy or himself. (laughs) That's crazy. He died on the cross that we could have peace with God and be presented, I want to hear it one more time, holy, unblemished, and blameless, holy, flawless, and with no charge from any enemy in his presence. But you're a Bible reader, and you're like, yeah, but wait, look, it says if, 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 oh boy, if. If you continue in your faith, established and firmed, if you continue not move from the hope held out in the gospel, and all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, is this up to me? If I continue my faith, if I don't move from the hope of the gospel, that's like a, uh, what is it called, like a preposition, right? Like, oh, I thought I had it, and now I don't. Do you know there's a temptation to move on from the gospel? Do you know there's a temptation to to, to outgrow the gospel do you know there's a temptation to stop saying that jesus is enough i mean jesus is okay but there's a few more things you have to know jesus is okay but there's a few things you have to do do you know there's a temptation to do that Uh, do you know there's a temptation to think well that was what i believed in sunday school when i was a kid but now that i'm a big bad adult man i believe all more important stuff do you know that there's a temptation to not believe the world's making a pretty good case. I don't think that's how that reads, church. I think it's more like the warning light on your car if you continue in your faith. The question I have today is, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Established and firm. Have you not been moved from the hope of the gospel? And maybe you've been moved a little bit, and then today I'm gonna call you back to the gospel. I'm gonna say, don't move off the gospel. But if you find yourself in the gospel, you see the if can be read backwards as well. If in your life, church in Colossae, if in your life, believer, that you are still believing the gospel, he has redeemed you. That's good news. If today you have not been moved from the hope of the gospel, he has redeemed you. And that's good news. His death on the cross paid for all of your sins because you've been redeemed. See, that works both ways there. And we're going to end here, and this will be faster than Paul, because I want you to see what he says. So in 24, now I, Paul, rejoice in what was suffered for you. Listen to this. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission of God gave to me to present to you Uh, the word in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which Christ in you, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And lastly, we proclaim him, the son, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully is at work in me. Paul says, I labor that you might know Christ. 
I want to say one thing here. There's a verse that we're not going to cover today, but he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. And I just told you that he reconciled you by his blood on the cross, and there's nothing more need be done. So what is Paul talking about? I fill up in my flesh the suffering that was lacking in Christ's affliction. I can think of one thing, the suffering, the willingness to proclaim the gospel at all costs. Paul's writing from a prison he's put in because he believes Jesus is the Messiah. It might cost you something to believe in Jesus in your life. I'm not trying to make it cost you, but it might cost you something. It might cost you relationships. It might cost you some, uh, uh, some social capital. It might cost you something to own your relationship with Christ. But Paul says, I am going to make up what is lacking in Christ. There's nothing in the cross of Christ that needs to be added to to save us, to reconcile us, but there is work to be done to proclaim. I heard another uh, pastor say it this way, saving the loss at all costs. That's what he said. Whatever it takes will do. Whatever it costs me to share the good news I have, because I have hope beyond the grave, and not everybody has it. I wonder, do you have that today? Do we rejoice in our suffering for the church, making known this great and glorious gospel, the mystery, and proclaiming Jesus alone? So how do you see Jesus in your life? Do you see that God sent his son to redeem us through his blood on the cross? Or do you see something less than that? Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and for the way it works in us and through us, the way it works on us and it shapes us. I pray today, Father, for those who uh, are just caught up in the world and some of us, Father, who are caught up in the world and and we can uh, do it with the best of them, just be hopeless and despondent and forget who you are. Forget the price you paid, Father, for our sins, that we could be reconciled. And Lord, that we could have peace. Help us, Father, to live in that peace and joy of salvation. Help us to know your anointing, your Holy Spirit's presence, and to be able to say with quiet confidence, I know a Savior that the world does not know. And then, Father, for those who maybe aren't receiving you, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would convince them in their spirit, not by wise arguments or fine-sounding speeches, but because of your Holy Spirit's indwelling presence that they would reconcile, that they would uh, repent and believe their sins are paid for in Jesus. And then, Father, we would be part of continuing that affliction that was lacking in the cross. Nothing that you need to be satisfied with us, but that we get to participate with Jesus. I'm reminded this morning of the words he said, the world hates me, and the world's gonna hate you too. Father, help us not shy away, but boldly, lovingly engage in a world that may hate us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.